This is the Education Gadfly Show. You just got to get them to take the test on a phone, Mike, and then you'll see. It, scores will shoot up. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas P. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Virginia Gentles. Ginny, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mike. Happy to be here. It is great to have you on. Ginny tells us she's a longtime listener, and we love having listeners on the show as guests. So welcome, welcome. Also joining us as always, uh, he, he also is a regular listener, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. I know I make you listen more than I, I let you talk sometimes. Well, well, maybe we'll try to change that this week. We'll, we'll mix it up. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Jenny is the director of the Education Freedom Center at the Independent Women's Forum. Uh, and she's also a longtime school choice advocate. I've known her in many roles in that way. And also a former state and federal education policy leader. If I recall, Jenny, you ran the charter school's office in Florida. Does that sound right? I did. It technically was called the Office of Independent Education and Parental Choice. Ooh, and since Florida yes. was such a leader in school choice, we had charter schools and we had the McKay Scholarship Program, the Opportunity Scholarship Program, the Corporate Tax Credit Scholarship Program, all the wonderful choice options in Florida. Uh, love it. So really, yeah, charters plus. Well, we might end up talking some about school choice, but mostly what we want to talk about is, of course, last week's election and what that meant for the parental rights movement. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Jenny, there's been a couple articles written about this in the last few days, Wall Street Journal, USA Today. Curious about your take. There, there was a lot of discussion before the election about whether or not the parents' rights movement was going to be a big factor. A lot of folks think it was a big factor when Glenn Youngkin won in your now state of Virginia last year. There were some school board races all over America where some of these parents' rights groups, like you remind us of the name of those groups, but that, that they ran school board members or supported them financially or otherwise. And so, yeah, how, how did they do? Is this thing for real? Well, Mike, you were separating out the parental rights movement and my school choice advocacy, but I actually see them very much as related to each other and very much a success story for mm -hmm. both parental rights and school choice in this election. So let's definitely delve into okay. uh, the right. school choice wave that yes. happened in the, in the election. I want to start with that. Uh, because we're talking about an established entity investing in education, <clears throat> and that's the um, American Federation for Children. They invested $10 million across 18 states, and they won 76% of their races. So we're not talking about school board elections at, um, for that. We're talking about state legislatures, which, as you all know, is where education policy gets done. Yep. Um, and so they're winning. They're investing in these elections. They're winning the vast majority of them. We're talking about 200 elections in the in the general election. And a uh, key point, they defeated 40 incumbents, and it's hard to defeat mm. an incumbent, right? And, and then they position themselves in a way that they're ready to get school choice legislation passed in the upcoming legislative session. So these key investments, strategic investments happen in states where they needed to win in order to get more seats, in order to get school choice legislation passed. Um, you also saw them supporting governors, and those governors won. Uh, Kim Reynolds in Iowa, Governor Stitt in, in Oklahoma. Great things are happening with school choice. So that's no, our no, good look, news. Especially given the environment, we all expected this was going to be this big red wave election, and it was not. It was the red puddle or the purple puddle. I don't know. I guess 
uh, as we're taping right now, we're still waiting for the House to be decided. So the fact that they were able to win, and, and frankly, I, I think it's fair to say they mostly, entirely, mostly supported Republicans in this environment. No, Jenny's saying not all Republicans. All right, okay. Yeah, that's uh, an organization that, again, invests strategically in candidates yeah. that are, yeah. are going to be supportive of school choice. And that isn't always, that isn't always Republicans at the state level, for sure, yeah. at the national yeah. level in our current environment at the state level. So there uh, was a school choice wave. There's good news um, coming out of that. And all of that relates to the parental rights movement because school choice is the ultimate opportunity and mechanism for truly empowering parents. And those uh, parents who are saying, I'm not going to have it anymore. I'm not dealing with what's going on in the public school system. I want out, but they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. They can if there's a state school choice program in place. And the parents who just want the school districts to listen to them. (laughs) So when they go to these school board meetings time after time, and when Mm -hmm. they they call and they write and they ask for change, uh, they want they expect some kind of responsiveness, but the last few years have proven that they're not getting it. School choice policies send a wake-up call to those school district leaders. If they don't start listening to those parents, the parents can and will leave. Mm -hmm. And that's going to impact their enrollment and that's going to impact their budgets. So we think that uh, at the Education Freedom Center at IWF, the Independent Women's Forum, We very much believe that school choice, education freedom gives parents the leverage that they need, both for their individual family and then also to get that school district to be responsive to them. And as we've talked about a lot on the more conservative side of the aisle, a lot of times it feels like all we focus on is school choice, you know, and school choice as the only answer, right? But here with the parental rights movement, as you say, it's certainly related to school choice, maybe works better where there's school choice, but it is also about having parents have a real say in the traditional public schools, right? And to get those to be uh, to be better, to be more uh, in tune with the needs of the community. All right. So how do these parents' rights uh, groups do on the school board front then? Okay. So we were talking about American Federation for Children investing $10 million <laughs> in hundreds of, of races. And that's an investment, which is different than an endorsement. So let's shift over to what we're talking about with these new parental rights groups investing and endorsing in mm-hmm. candidates. Um, and I think the investment part of it is small at this point. You're talking about new organizations, um, organizations in some part, in, in some cases that were just started by moms who were like looking around and super frustrated with what was going on and have formed chapters and sold t-shirts and then realized, oh, we need to, we need to get involved in elections. And they're new to politics and they don't have the deep pockets and the millions of dollars. Groups like Moms for Liberty, I think that might have been the group whose name you were trying to come up with. Um, Yes, they are a media juggernaut, you know, hundreds of of interviews. They're everywhere uh, when it comes to to the media. And they're everywhere when it comes to forming chapters in almost every state. Um, They have hundreds of chapters at this point. But as far as investing in elections, they don't have the dollars that we're talking about. So they did endorse candidates. And um, of the 270 candidates that they endorsed in the general election, they're finding about 50% of them won. That seems like good news. Um, They did invest some, a small amount in their Florida candidates. And in Florida, we did have a red wave and those candidates did do very well. And a number of them were um, actually endorsed by by the governor um, as well. So I I think for a new organization, um, for for moms who are just trying to figure out 
how to get the school districts to listen to them, this is a success story. There's some other organizations, including um, the 1776 Project Pack. Now, they've invested, they say, $3 million since 2021, and they've won 100 school board seats. And they take credit for flipping boards, school boards in Minnesota and Maryland, for example. Um, so that's an organization that's uh, a little more established, some deeper pockets, and seeing some results from that. And then you have state-based organizations like the Minnesota Parents Alliance, and they are saying that they won 49 races um, mm-hmm. in the 15. They won 15 out of the 19 districts that they invested in. Mm-hmm. So I think we're seeing some some good news from from the parental rights perspective. I think we should acknowledge that even if this sounds like a, a lot of victories, and if you like the kinds of things these groups are pushing, that that sounds like good news. It's still a drop in the bucket compared to the 13,000 school boards, 90,000 school board members that we have in this country. I mean, that's the nature, as I've seen over the years. It feels a little bit cyclical that people kind of rediscover school boards and, hey, why don't we run people for the school board? It's just the scale is really challenging, right? It's just so many. And then you start saying, well, so maybe we focus on the bigger districts. And then so part of that is just to say it's hard. It's really hard, right, to do this at scale in a way that's going to end up having an impact on a lot of kids. Well, Mike, Moms for Liberty has taken credit for flipping Miami-Dade. So if you're talking big, bigger right, districts, right. I think Miami-Dade yeah, counts. That uh, would count. Yes. For sure. I mean, what did we see? Number three, the third biggest district now. Okay. Yeah. And and let's um, let's acknowledge the scale of what the unions are investing in, in these elections. So we're talking um, the $10 million that the American Federation for Children invested across the country, the $3 million that the mm-hmm. 1776... Pr- um, project PAC invested. That's in stark contrast to the NEA investing $37.8 million in yeah. 2022 yeah, races no, and the AFT investing $11.6 million. No, exactly. No, exactly. Right. I mean, that's that's the challenge, right? And and much less, you know, what the NEA has in all these small districts where they tend to be the, the union is, you know, where they don't have to spend a lot of money. They just get the teachers to vote for their candidates and they get the teachers' husbands and family members. And that's usually enough to win. That's all you need. Here in Montgomery County, uh, Maryland, where I live, where the union won every single race this cycle, every single race, school board, county executive, county council, governor, up and down the ballot, they got everything they wanted. So it's, you know, again, I think it's great to the degree that we can have somebody challenge that that political monopoly. We're just at the very beginning of it. David, you want to get in here at all? Uh, Especially, I suspect you may not agree with some of these parent groups on some of the things that they're advocating. Well, you have to get specific, Mike, and I doubt we have the time uh, to cover every possible issue. I guess the question I would ask uh, as someone, you know, as a card carrying Democrat for education reform is, you know, we've talked a lot about the tendency of of national polarization in the last two years. It seems like it is sucking education slowly down into the vortex that has consumed everything else. And so I'm just, I'm curious to know, Jenny, your perspective on it as someone who's working with grassroots groups, right? Is education, is it inevitably becoming more partisan? Are there areas of bipartisan agreement, I guess, at the ground level that the system, you know, that we're just not seeing at the 50,000 foot level that you expect to become more obvious in the next few years? How do you see it? Well, I I live in a a district that's very similar to Mike's district, suburbs of of D.C. You're not going to see big political wins for the the parental rights candidate, for example. But what's really encouraging to me is the the number of parents who are really paying very close attention to what's going on at the school district level. Parents who had no idea 
who their county leaders were, who their school board members were, are now watching and documenting each school board meeting and are really, really frustrated with how the district is investing ESSER funding and really angry about the fact that the district has failed to to educate students to teach reading and are asking really tough questions about the reading curriculum and who are are ready to um, speak up when schools are closing again or there are policies that seem to prioritize the adults over over kids. And none of that is partisan. And these parents that Arlington is 80% Democrat voters these are primarily people who are historically have voted um, Democrat. They're just parents who are now awake and are really concerned about what's going on in the district and aren't going to let them get away with flying under the radar anymore. Well, and it's hopeful. I mean, look, but again, uh, here, here I am starting to feel like a middle-aged or more man. We've seen, we, we've had hopes before in education reform that parents would get angry and, and they'd get radicalized and they'd finally be a counterweight to the system. And it's just so hard to maintain it, to sustain it, right? I mean, we have seen it work in the school choice movement. If we can create new schools and new opportunities, and then parents will defend those schools they have chosen uh, for sure. Uh, But in terms of a way to really improve traditional public schools, it's just hard. It's just such a David versus Goliath story that the system just has so much money. They have all the information. They've got the politics wrapped up. It's tough. It's just really tough. And, And by the way, we talk about school board races, but you know, in some of the purple gubernatorial races where uh, candidates tried to pull the Glenn Youngkin rabbit out of the hat again with parental rights, I'm thinking about Tudor Dixon in Michigan, for example, it did not seem to work as well this year, maybe just because there was so much else on voters' minds. As we talked about at the beginning, there are quite a few governors who are very supportive of parental rights, of supportive of school choice, who really want to prioritize um, education over indoctrination, students over over the adults. And Tennessee's Governor Bill Lee is an example of that. He won by 33 points after making education a centerpiece. So I I think that strong leadership from governors um, is something that we're going to see in the future. They know that they can win campaigning on, on education and on school choice. And um, Mike, I'm, I'm with you. I think we're at the sta- same stage of life and we've both been around for a while. Like we've seen school boards flip and we've seen them flip back yeah. and we've seen parents rise up and be so irate about Common Core and then go away. <laughs> I've written about this. Uh, the the parent right movement needs needs school choice. Education freedom yeah. is, is, in my opinion, is, is what you need to like shake up the system. It's not going to reform itself and parents speaking up at school board meetings, even parents running for school board is is not going to uh, turn around a system that's determined to do exactly what it wants to do. Well, you know, there's one one word we haven't mentioned yet, and that's DeSantis. You know, he made this issue a big one throughout his time as governor in Florida so far. And in the campaign, he also won a big victory, 20 points, and everybody seems to expect him now to run for president. So if that happens, it certainly seems likely that he's going to keep this issue on the front burner. Again, Regardless of what you think of DeSantis or, you know, Democratic, Republican, uh, that may at least have this this ability to keep this issue moving uh, and maybe give some put some wind in the sails of these parents rights groups. Yeah. Good good for us for getting to DeSantis at the end. He's not the only story this election. There's a lot more to be said. (laughs) More more fun podcasts in our future, Mike. I think so. We have been here with Ginny Gentles. Again, Ginny is the director of the Education Freedom Center at the Independent Women's Forum. Jenny, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it, Mike. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. 
Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. She had a great conversation there with Ginny Gentles at the Independent Women's Forum about parental rights and education. What, what's your take? You think uh, you think this movement has legs? You think it can be sustained? Um, I do. I do think it has legs, but I think that it can be overly politicized. Imagine that. Yeah. Um, I think most reasonable people can agree parents should have a say in their child's education. Mm-hmm. But then it starts bleeding over into, you know, CRT. And I don't know. It just seems like everything just gets torched. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 something common <laughs> sense that then gets politicized. That then means people are going to be for and against it, even though yeah. everybody should be for parents having a say in their child's education. Well, look. I am choosing to feel optimistic right now. I feel like there's been just a string of good news in that, I mean, first of all, whatever you think of the election and the, the sort of red puddle versus the wet red wave, it does seem like good news that that some of the most extreme folks out there lost, that maybe there's some move towards the center right now, which, hey, I think is certainly a good thing for education reform. It looks like Twitter may imploding, which is probably good for this <laughs> idea of not having such polarization in the country. Bad for Petrilli, good for America. <laughs> hey, I'm fine to take that. And likewise, can't help but be gleeful about the whole cryptocurrency thing imploding as well. So, hey, plus, of course, most importantly, Ukraine is winning the war in Russia. Yes. So for many reasons, we can feel optimistic. And, you know, maybe we're getting past some of the ugliness. Maybe. Maybe. The past few That's years. right. That's right. Maybe. maybe. Uh, but hey, we are not a politics podcast. We are an education podcast that has a great segment every week on education research. What you got for us this week, Amber? A new study out of uh, the AEFP journal, a trio of economists take a fresh look at the effects on student performance of transitioning from paper test to computerized test. You would think this has happened in every state, but we mm. still see states transitioning. So they're looking at this transition that has occurred in so many states, but they're zeroing in on CBT, computer-based testing in South Carolina, starting in 2015. They're looking at elementary and middle schools only. So they had this sort of uh, roll-in approach where they started to take social studies and science tests online in 2015. Then math and ELA got rolled over online in 2016. But legislative testing wasn't actually legislatively required until 2016, online testing rather. But that said, you had a rollout of this gradually because all schools weren't able to meet this deadline and they applied for waivers because they didn't have enough security, they didn't have enough bandwidth. But as of 2018, CBT was nearly universal. So they're basically go through, you know, what's the difference between paper and online? And they are said to be identical tests except that the latter displays questions on a computer screen. Uh, Analysts have the share of online testing for each grade level, for each school, for each of four tests. Science, ELA, math, and social studies. They have administrative and school-level data. They have information on the level of technology per school, such as broadband access, tech devices per teacher. They conduct two analyses. The first, an event study, allows them to identify pre-existing trend differences in test scores between CBD adopting schools and non-adopting schools. They're able to basically say there were no pre-existing trends. And then they look at how effects evolve over time. And then they set the treatment start time for a grade level in any school as the year in which more than 10% of the students in that school grade group take CBT for a given subject, which seemed kind of low, but... That's what they set it at. 
They observe pre and post period data for all subjects, but they have the most for social studies and science. They're basically looking at four periods prior to the change in this modality and three years after. Oh, man, they got a two-way year school and fixed effects model. They've got all these other models that control for various school and student characteristics. They look at subgroups. Let's look at event study results first. Uh, Negative effects from CBT on average test scores ranging from 0.02 standard deviation reduction in math to 0.09 reduction in ELA Hmm. in the first year of CBT adoption. These negative effects do not fade in subsequent years. So they see them in year two and year three as well, even as students presumably gain more experience with computerized uh, testing. Likewise, the other model shows overall negative effects of CBT, once again with the largest magnitude in ELA. And then when they're looking at grade levels, they find a negative effect for ELA and science in both elementary and middle grades. But math and social studies is negative only at the middle school level, not at the elementary and middle school level. Additional models, same trend, continue to show the impact on ELA is the most negative and middle school students in general experience more significant decreases in test scores than the elementary kids. Then they look at poverty status defined as students in poor households that are receiving food stamps or other monetary benefits. And they find that computerized testing is apt to lower test scores in all subject areas for students in poor households, but again, especially in ELA. Among non-poor households, uh, online testing has no significant effects on social studies and math, but negative effects in science and ELA. But these effects are smaller than the negative impacts on kids in poor homes. Finally, are like they're like, okay, how does school technology potentially impact these effects? It's maybe if they're more familiar with technology, obviously can mitigate the effect. So they use the number of tech devices per teacher in a school as the key measure of a school's technology. They're labeled high tech if that number's above the median, they're low tech if it's below. And overall, they find smaller effects in schools where this technology is more readily available. For example, the CBA effect in ELA is negative in both high and low tech schools, but that effect is half as large in the high tech schools. And poor students, again, show negative effects even in schools that have better technology access, but the effects are more muted. Then they say, okay, let's look at other measures of school technology besides devices per teacher. So they use greater bandwidth. Once again, similar results. But when they use the share of students with devices as that measure, which you would think maybe that would be better, they don't see much of an effect. Uh, They see less of an effect than if the teacher uh, has the uh, devices. So they say, well, maybe that demonstrates that teacher familiarity with computers is more important than students in ensuring this smooth transition to computer-based testing. My last note, the fact that this negative effect is persistent, didn't fade over the next couple of years, was sort of curious because I was expecting that those negative effects would sort of be temporary bumps in the road. They appeared not to be. So that's what I got. David, what do you think? I'm not sure what to think, Mike. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> My first thought goes to Nate, honestly. You know, yeah, we, that's we've it, all yeah. been wondering pre-pandemic why we were seeing the NAEP scores flatline or even go down in some areas. And it 
you know, there was a transition on NAEP as well. I mean, the, the NAEP people are brilliant, and I assume they have made sure that that it's not the shift to computer-based assessment that's causing it. But that, there has been debate about that. I remember when Louisiana mm-hmm. uh, did surprisingly poorly a few years ago, the superintendent at the time, John White, said, hey, look, we don't test based on computers yet, and they do at NAEP. Maybe that's why. And it, it makes me wonder. They looked, I know, Amber, at poor schools, I guess. Maybe that's the best they could do. But it makes me wonder if it breaks out by low achievers versus high achievers as well, which was the trend pre-pandemic, of course, was that it was the low achieving kids whose trend line was really looking bad. Could some of that have been because of the shift to computer-based testing? I'm just trying to figure out, I'm trying to understand what what the mechanism is here, right? I mean, if we're saying the teacher's proficiency with technology is somehow holding students back. Yeah, I'm struggling Mm -hmm. with that. I mean, look, I mean, mean, why poor kids or or low achieving kids would do worse seems to make sense. I mean, if you're talking about ELA, may very well be the writing portion of the ELA test that they're Mm -hmm. doing worse on. They're typing their answers, you know, into the computer. That's hard to do when you're still learning to read and and write. And if you haven't been using one-to-one computing, I mean, look, it could be that after the pandemic and now that everybody's got a Chromebook and everybody, a lot of people, most kids, a lot more kids than before, you know, maybe some of this goes away and more Mm -hmm. kids are used to every day doing assignments on their Chromebooks and, you know, the typing in in their responses is not as big an issue. But it's just interesting to me that, oh, my God, what if <laughs> what if this right. is part of the story that we should be talking about? Yeah, we're trying to figure out what the heck was happening before the pandemic, after the pandemic, student achievement. I mean, this. And- well, in, in Massachusetts, I don't know if you guys remember, but I, I did report on a similar study and similar uh, findings in Massachusetts, too, with the transition to park. And, and it makes sense that it persists. I mean, I, it's not like a kid taking a test once a year on a computer, then a year later, they do it again on a computer, like that's going to make much of a difference, right? Because Mm -hmm. let us remind our readers, kids don't actually spend that much time taking tests, despite what you might have heard uh, from the opponents of testing, right? So (laughs) what's going to make a difference is if they are using devices, if they're, you know, doing academic work on devices daily. You just got to get them to take the test on a phone, Mike, and then you'll see (laughs) scores will shoot up. Yes, with their thumbs. (laughs) With their thumbs. It, no matter how you slice it, right, this, these are skills that kids need to have, right? I mean, computers aren't going away, so. They do. They do. Well, thank you, Amber. And uh, again, raises more questions maybe than it answers for us. But That's right. uh, So uh, people out there, uh, ask those questions, maybe see if you can answer them. And if anybody knows if, if this could plausibly explain any NAPE trends or if uh, that's nothing to worry about, please let us know. <laughs> We'd be curious. All right. Hey, that is all the time that we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas P. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas P. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.